how can we have a depolarizing conversation about Islam? I know almost nothing about it. I've read a few pages of the Quran, sitting in a bookstore, didn't quite commit to buying the book, was thinking today that I probably should buy a copy. I've read a little bit of comparative religion stuff about all of the monotheistic religions, mostly through Karen Armstrong, comparative religion writer. I took a medieval philosophy class in college where I learned about how Islamic philosophers basically kept Aristotle alive in the West and how Thomas Aquinas, famous Catholic thinker and theologian, never would have even read Aristotle if it weren't for those guys. But really, what is it? What is Islam? What do Muslims believe? What do they care about? How do they see the world as opposed to the way a Western modern person sees it or as opposed to how a practicing Christian sees it? Are those even meaningful categories to delineate between? Honestly, I don't really know. And I'd be willing to bet that most of you don't know a ton about this either. So this is kind of like an Islam 101 class with Judd, except that I get to ask all the questions I want to ask and we get to relate it to politics. So it's like Islam 101 super edition. I was learning so much from talking to Judd a few weeks ago when we had this conversation that we talked for almost two hours. And it was like so much information that I actually decided to split this into two shorter, more manageable episodes. The second one will come out midweek, and then we'll have a new topic next Monday. But make sure you listen all the way to the end of this episode, because that's when we get into Sharia law, which is a very big hot button issue especially in right-wing media these days and leading up to the election. But before we get into the conversation with Judd, I want to talk a little bit about our Facebook group. We have a Facebook group called Depolarized Podcasts Discussion Group. Uh, you can search for it on Facebook, and it's been amazing. Man, recently it's been really powerful. Ian Smith, who we had on, he's the Trump voter we talked to um, a couple months ago. He wrote this long post about how helpful the group has been to him because he feels like he can come here. He can ask questions from his perspective and people will respond to him kindly without judging him ahead of time. And then people on the left can reach out to Ian and other conservative people who are on the, in the group who are on the, the threads. And a number of people have said how they can ask questions they're afraid to ask. They can have conversations freely without being afraid of being called a bigot or a coward or whatever. Um, I'd love to take credit for this, but I can't. I mean, it's just the people who have joined it are amazing, and it's become a really awesome space for safe dialogue. And a lot of people you know, ask questions like, hey, this might sound silly. I don't know about this. Conservative friends, can you clue me in? Or liberal friends, can you clue me in? And it's just a great space. I've been very proud to have any part in getting that conversation going. And I've been really enjoying it. And I think a lot of people have. So if you enjoy the show, I think it's worth checking out if you're on Facebook. So search for it in the app or on the Facebook website, Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group. And without further ado, here's Judd. So, Mr. Judd King, give us a little bit of background about yourself. Uh, you went to Georgetown and studied in Islamic studies, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I got my master's in uh, contemporary Arab studies there, uh, and I got my PhD in Islamic studies, 2013, if I'm not mistaken. Nice. 
uh, into 2013. So, yeah. And you've spent a bit of time in the Middle East, is that right? Sure, yeah. I studied abroad in uh, the first time I sort of did that for uh, an extended period. I went to Lebanon for like a summer to learn some Arabic. That was the summer of 2001, so just before 9-11 happened. That made for some interesting conversations when I got back. Oh, yeah. Since then, I studied in uh, Egypt a couple of times and uh, a whole bunch in Turkey. So yeah, I've uh, also did my uh, dissertation research in Turkey. I did some internships at sort of think tanks in Turkey uh, over various summers. Most recently, I was there, not last summer, but the summer before that, doing some more research. And what did your research in Turkey focus on? This last time, it was about sort of people's reactions to ISIS and sort of what they had to say about that, and especially the sort of conspiracy theories that most of them appear to buy into about how ISIS is, you know, quote-unquote, really the work of uh, non-Muslim agents and stuff trying to discredit Islam, because Muslims would never do something like that. Interesting. Yeah, and sort of exploring that. Uh, My previous research, which is sort of the bulk of what I've done, is sort of on the question of... Uh, moral psychology and political Islam and sort of people that support the ruling party and kind of a broad survey of where their moral values that end up getting encoded as religious come from and the sort of different influences on that and really how much of it has to do with the scripture versus how much of it is more about really their emotional uh, predilections. Interesting. So you're trying to separate out in the Islamic world and specifically in Turkey where the lines are drawn between political aspirations or religious motivations, moral reasoning, and you're using... And culture. And culture. Okay, and you're using cognitive and social psychology, and you're you're interviewing people, and you're doing these experiments. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That sounds great. What we're going to do today, though, because we haven't talked about Islam at all yet on this program, is we're going to do a bit more of a primer... And because I think that one of the things in America is there's a real lack of knowledge about Islam and the Islamic world, but hopefully we will get into uh, some of those areas in which you've spent so much time working and have expertise, but let's just start with some really basic stuff. All right. How do Muslims view various scriptures? Is the Quran basically their Bible, the way we think of the Bible for Christians, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, no, it's a little more complicated like that. I mean, the, the quick and dirty answer is yes, but really in a lot of ways the Quran plays a more significant role than the Bible does in at least most varieties of Christianity. I suppose certain Calvinists, maybe it might be a little more similar, but really uh, somebody once said that uh, the Quran plays a much more analogous role to the person of Christ in Christianity. Interesting. Uh, actually, than the scripture. Possibly it's it's a little more analogous to what you have with the Torah in uh, Judaism, but uh, the idea is sort of that uh, while there were certain miracles that happened during the prophet's lifetime, uh, the emphasis really isn't on the story of what happened to him so much as on the, I guess, it's not really so much the word made flesh as the word made into words. And that's why it's important for the Quran to be read in Arabic? Yes, exactly. People don't often know this. The Quran is actually written in uh, almost entirely in this sort of uh, imperfect sort of rhyme scheme. Okay. It, it's actually, I mean, it says that it's not a form of poetry, but in, hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but it, basically it's a sort of poetic sort of document. 
Yeah. In a lot of ways, although it, it doesn't have a meter, so it's, it's sort of a rhyming prose. So it's kind of like saying for the Quran, the aesthetic of reading it in Arabic is a part of the revelation from God. Absolutely. And the idea is that the document itself represents the primary miracle that Muhammad brought. Okay. As opposed to, let's say, the Gospels in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. which give four distinct perspectives on the man, Jesus Christ, as the focus. Right. No, it's not like that at all. Yeah, where where a translation is is great. You might as well translate it into a million languages because Mm -hmm. the point is to have the relationship with... Jesus. That's that. That's the point. But for the Quran, yes. it is really about the document, the work itself. I, I'd say the most comparable book of the Bible to most of the Quran is probably the Psalms. Okay. Actually, uh, most of it is sort of structured, sort of like that. Some sort of meditative sort of statements or general sort of things about God, theology, etc. It really isn't a narrative text. There are narratives within it. But it tends to be more something along the lines of, don't worship idols, by the way, here's the story of Moses, here's the (laughs) idol in the story of Moses, Yeah, there you get your lesson. And it won't tell you the entire story of Moses uh, in that one place, it'll be sort of a part of it, and then maybe somewhere else there'll be, it's making a different point and it tells the story of Moses there. And then, again, it'll tell another sort of truncated version of the story of Moses that only highlights certain aspects of it, again, when it's talking about the stories of the prophets generally and the sort of continuities between their different missions. Okay. So you get narratives, but it's not really these narratives about a single subject, and they're very fragmented. What you do not get pretty much ever in the Quran is any discussion of Muhammad himself. I believe his name is mentioned twice, possibly only once. One of them saying that Muhammad is the messenger of God and the people that are with him are beloved of God. And then, I'm not even sure about the other time, but uh, there's not really a big story about him. It's sort of, the Quran was meant to be addressed to the contemporaries of the prophet, so it would have kind of been sort of weird to tell them the story of him. Interesting, because they're living then and they know him. Right, they kind of know him, right, or they know of him and, you know, they can just ask the people that hung out with him if they have questions about him. Right, so that's uh, different than, for instance, the Torah, which tells a story of Moses and is at least traditionally ascribed to have been written by Moses about, largely about himself, yeah. Well, parts of it are about himself. I mean, a lot of it's about Genesis and like that kind of a thing. But yeah, the book of Exodus certainly is uh, by him, which is uh, interesting. Now, having said that, the Quran is certainly the central point. There's also the corpus of reports about the life of the prophet because people, you know, did kind of want to know about him. And these are things that he supposedly said, according to at least somebody, And there are hundreds of thousands of these little sayings that are accumulated in these different collections, uh, some of which are more canonical than others. Sunnis generally accept six of these books to be, you know, canonical, uh, although some of them pick a couple of others, but there are six that are generally agreed on. And each of the six, they basically categorize each of the sayings that they've reported into qualities of sort of being reliable, unreliable, or, you know, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. 
basically. However, for the majority of these sort of reports, you can kind of go either way, depending on how you want to argue whether it's an authentic Hadith or not an authentic Hadith, which are the reports. So there's basically some wiggle room, and if you don't really want to accept something that's in the Hadiths, usually you can find a way around it, is basically the way things work. Uh, And in any case, since it's epistemologically inferior to the Quran, the things that are in the Quran take precedence. Okay. Uh, so yeah. it's kind of like the Apocrypha, but people, Protestants anyway, don't even usually read the Apocrypha. So yeah. it's not really like the Apocrypha. It's got a substantially higher standing than that. Possibly it's maybe something like the Old Testament for Christians, but uh, it's not quite that either. But okay. uh, yeah. those are the two big sources that you have. And then what are the five pillars of Islam? And do those five pillars still hold a central place for like all practicing Muslims? In my experience, at least, it's something that I found people talked about a lot more with non-Muslims than Muslims talk about with themselves in terms of the uh, analogy of it being like there's five pillars that hold the religion up. It does come down eventually to a saying by the prophet that's kind of well-known, but in terms of daily life... People occasionally talk about there being five pillars, but it's not as common for them to discuss it in those terms as it is for them to, if a non-Muslim asks them to explain Islam, then they'll mention it. But they are very important individually, for for certain. And the five of them are the uh, Tawheed, which is basically uh, the sort of articles of faith that you believe in, that there's no God but God, and the the Prophet is the messenger of God. Then there is the... uh, Prayers, the five times a day sort of daily prayers, which have a certain structure to them that you're supposed to follow. Fasting for the month of Ramadan, and zakat, which is paying alms, which you can do throughout the year, but you have to pay at least a certain amount uh, by the end of every year. And then the pilgrimage to Mecca known as the Hajj, which you're supposed to do at least once in your lifetime if you have the money to do so. Somebody once pointed out that... uh, All of these five things kind of have different timing. One of them is supposed to be constant, which is sort of your beliefs. The other is supposed to be a daily thing, which is the prayers. Another is an annual thing that lasts for a month, which is Ramadan. And then you have uh, the uh, annual thing, which happens once, which is the almsgiving. And then finally, you have one that's once in your lifetime, which is the Hajj. Yeah. All of those are very major things that, you know, any Muslim will tell you is a major sort of indispensable part of the religion. Although, having said that, there are certain sects that don't observe all of them. Some of them don't do the prayers, some of them don't do fasting, and some of them don't make the pilgrimage. Although, in terms of numbers, these are very numerically small demographics we're talking about. So maybe 4 or 5% of the Muslim world, if that much, probably not. So that leads into my next question, which is maybe a silly one, but are there non-practicing Muslims, just like there are non-practicing Catholics, non-practicing Jews, non-practicing Buddhists, etc.? Yes, of course there are, uh, many of them. But I, I suppose I, I suppose I should ask what you mean by non-practicing. Do you mean sort of atheists that are culturally Muslim or people that are just sort of lazy? for lack of a better word. Well, so of course there are like lazy people who identify as Muslim, just like there are lazy Christians who identify as Christian, believe Jesus is their savior and just don't do a very good job of doing anything about it. Um, Of course there have to be that, just that's human nature. But is there a category akin to like, you know, I'm culturally Jewish, 
but I don't go to synagogue. I don't believe in God. Is there a category like that maybe for Islam? Yes, there absolutely is. Very much, as you can imagine, I'm sure, sort of uh, woven into the sort of culture of the countries where it's practiced. And so, uh, you know, it's very difficult to sort of excise yourself from that cultural matrix entirely. And, you know, it's it's not clear what you'd exactly be left with if you take away all of it, even if you remove most of the actual religious elements as yeah. such. So that's an interesting question, because growing up evangelical Protestant, we thought like, if you don't go to church and you don't pray and you don't read your Bible, I mean, you're, there's really not much about you that's Christian, but mm-hmm. it's different for like Catholics where there's like, you can be culturally Catholic and you can feel like a connection to the church, even though you're not practicing. And there is even a bigger mm. sort of rainbow of options within Judaism yeah. because of its history. Can you kind of place Islam somewhere on that continuum? You know, what percentage of Muslims do you have any idea, you know, live in Muslim heritage communities, but don't go to the mosque, don't pray, have no intention of going to Mecca? Can you give us some kind of a breakdown Mm -hmm. somewhere between Judaism and evangelical Protestantism? Well, I think it really depends on the country and the sort of Mm -hmm. variety of Islam to some extent. There's one sect, for example, the Alevi sect, it's pretty small and it's kind of an outlier in a lot of respects, but most of them are basically these days kind of Marxists, or quite a lot of them are Marxists, basically, that, you know, uh, they're very attached to their Alevi identity, but it's it's very much meant to be this oppositional sort of thing about fighting power, fighting for the rights of workers, and, you know, you know fighting against the state, and, you know, they, they find parallels with this throughout their history, where the Ottomans persecuted them historically, and, and uh, later the Turkish government did. Well, I guess their version of Islam allows them to drink anyway, so the fact that they drink like fish isn't really that much of an, uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a sort of uh, puzzler. But, you know, even the sort of Alevi rituals that they do observe, a lot of them say, well, I don't really have much of a use for it, or it's mostly just a folk song or whatever it is. I'll sing it, but it doesn't really matter to me, other than it's part of my identity. So you have that, but really to get more to your question, I think for most Sunni Muslims at least, or mainstream Shias, usually the last thing to go for people that say, well, I don't really believe in any of this, but I still kind of consider myself culturally Muslim, if they retain any sort of distinctive behavior, is usually actually not eating pork. Huh. For some reason, yes. Certainly, if you live in a Muslim country, I mean, it would kind of be a sort of very big statement to go out of your way to find one of the two outlets that actually sells pork, um, (laughs) depending on how strong the majority is, and then go out of your way to eat it. It's kind of like, I don't know, uh, you know, the way they made sort of Christians trample on a cross before going into Japan once upon a time. It's kind of an going out of your way to sort of spit on the tradition sort of thing. Right. In America or, you know, Germany or or whatever, it's it's maybe a little different. But uh, even still, like, a lot of people still can't bring themselves to do that culturally. Uh, it's just for whatever reason they think it's unhealthy or something like that. Which is just to say it's really woven in deep to these people's identities. Yeah. Often you'll also get people that have uh, retained conservative cultural values, such as... Uh, you know, not having maybe premarital sex or uh, maybe dressing conservatively or something like that or not drinking. 
those can often sort of be uh, part of that. You're saying and be non-practicing for all intents and purposes. They're just, but that yeah. is still part of their identity. There's probably an analogous population of kind of semi-Christians in America that are like that, who really don't go to church. Mm -hmm. They don't really pray, but there is this kind of conservative American Christianity that they nonetheless identify with and feel comfortable with and would, would still follow and vote Republican probably. And you know, that kind of a thing. This is the thing. If they really do believe in the stuff rather than saying, no, it's a bunch of nonsense. I'm talking about people basically that for all intents and purposes, don't believe in God and basically say, okay, this is a colorful superstition and it's part of our culture and it's nice, but, you know, I don't really believe in that stuff. I mean, get serious. I'm talking about those sorts of people. For hmm. people that I think are more in your category, I think there is a higher threshold for uh, observance, which usually at least includes fasting at least some of the time during Ramadan. Yeah, okay, I see. Uh, the, the first thing to go is usually the daily prayers, because that's like a, a hassle. It's a hassle, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's work to do that. Yeah. And then... Uh, Usually the sort of baseline, at least for men, is that they will go to the Friday prayers at least once a week, uh, although some people try and do at least one prayer a day or something like that. But usually men that consider themselves observant, if kind of flawed, will do the uh, once a week on Friday sort of thing. And then people sort of last ditch sort of thing of, no, I still believe in it, is I'll try and fast in Ramadan at least some of the time. Often people that don't pray actually will still fast the whole month of Ramadan. And then if they completely give up on that, then it's usually um, either they're ill or something like that. Because that's such an important communal activity, that would sort of be the last sort of thing that usually goes before you get into the territory of people that really just don't put much stock in the whole religion thing. So I want to transition to kind of Islam as a political force in the world. Uh, certainly yes. one that is not going away with the mm -hmm. with the advent of radical Islamic terrorism or whatever you want to call it right. over you know over the last decades. Yeah, not going anywhere. What is the difference between Islam itself and what is what people now call Islamism? They use that phrase. Yeah, they can add ism to things nowadays. It helps, I guess. <laughs> uh, but whatever that word is getting at, I mean, it's getting at a kind of a, a, maybe a militant Islam, or that's what it—that's how it appears to I me, anyway. That, this is the problem. I kind of wrote a many hundred-page dissertation on sort of that term, and I really—I still don't know exactly what it means. Uh, <laughs> the problem is, it's a—it's a very subjective sort of term. A useful sort of term for it is sort of thinly coherent. It doesn't really have any set definition. Uh, yeah. of what it means. Uh, it has sort of a range of things, sort of ingredients that people typically associate with it, but none of them is really central to the entire definition as a sort of sine qua non. So give us like a so few I'll things that are... Yeah. yeah. The basic sort of fast definition somebody would give you is that it's Islam as an ideology as opposed to simply Islam as a religion. Okay. And of course certain fundamentalists of various stripes will say, well, all religions are ideologies or something like that, but really uh, the idea here is that um, to use the phrase that the Muslim Brotherhood sort of popularized back in when it got started in the 1920s, Islam is the answer. 
is mm. the idea that whatever your question is, whether it's about gardening or politics or, I don't know, music or whatever, Islam is the answer, and you can find an answer in Islam, and you should. So that's basically just fundamentalist Islam, not in the sense of necessarily fundamentalist extremism. For example, within Christianity, fundamental extremism Christianity would be like Westboro Baptist Church and the, the yes. people who are picketing outside of sports events. But fundamentalist right. Christianity would just say, look, the Bible has what we need for basically every question. It gives us straight up literal truth about the world. And we don't really need a lot of other sources of information or whatever, like just stick to these fundamentals. It's all here in biblical Christianity? Well, yes. There tends, I believe, among most Muslims, the one sort of place where the parallel does kind of fall apart, it's mostly true. Uh, the sort of more anti-science sort of thing that Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity, has sort of found itself locked into yeah. over the years uh, of being at odds with science isn't usually as much of an issue with most of the sort of more fundamentalist end of the spectrum Muslims. For example, there are many fundamentalist Muslims that definitely qualify as fundamentalist, if you want to use that term. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean that right. more as a descriptive thing if they fall into this sort of category. That, for example, would be totally on board with the idea of sort of divinely guided evolution. And right. they believe, you know, whatever the science says okay, we can find something in the Quran that sort of justifies it or whatever. But that's easier for a Muslim than a Christian because the Quran is not describing historical events the same way, or it doesn't even, I don't think personally that Genesis is doing that either, but it, it does kind of read like it's doing that. Yes, whereas the yes, Quran exactly. doesn't, right? Well, I, there are accounts of God creating things and that kind of thing, and there are plenty of Muslims, not all of whom are fundamentalists, interestingly, that don't believe in evolution because, well, often the way they'll tell you they don't believe in it is that they find the science unconvincing, whether or not that's actually, you know, at the heart of the matter is a whole other yeah. story. But uh, yeah. And it, it depends a lot on countries, you know, in, in a lot of countries it's, you know, 80% of the people believe in evolution and in some of them... 20% of them uh, believe in it. But yeah. uh, to come back to the point, one of the main sort of things that sometimes defines what people are talking about as Islamism is this idea that it's got a political dimension. Okay. And that you should and somehow can get your political answers from Islam. And that sounds very nice as a sort of slogan for some people, uh, and there's certainly p people in the West that are willing to say, yes, that's what they're trying to do. Uh, as well, uh, as enthusiastic Muslims that sort of believe in it. But when you really get into it, of course, you end up with all sorts of sort of issues with uh, really what does that mean? Right. It, it doesn't actually quite end up being what uh, it's cracked up to be. But of course, I think this happens with a lot of sort of varieties of fundamentalism that, you know, it tells you it's giving you this religiously rooted solution. And in fact, it's just some other solution that's been dressed up in religion. Right. So... That seems like a good segue for Sharia law. Oh, what yes. is Sharia law? Like, I'll admit, I have no idea. I've read a few things. I've heard people say different things. What is it? Well, it basically is... Somebody once said that um, 
and I, I wish I remembered who it was because it was a very insightful comment, that Sharia in a lot of ways for Muslims plays the role that theology does for Christians. Interesting. In that for Muslims, 80 to 90 percent of Muslims are all Sunni and basically they have the same theology, qua theology. They believe that there's one God, uh, he's unitary, doesn't have children, indivisible, power over all things. More or less, they believe that he wrote the Quran sort of word for word and gave it to the prophet, and that the prophet was a human being, but that was sort of shielded from sinning, or at least from sinning without sort of pointing out that it was a sin so that people could learn from his example, sort of had an infallibility about him, and that there's not really that much room for debate within the parameters of Sunni doctrinaire Islam. Yeah. 10% of the Muslims roughly are Shia, and the great majority of those also believe most of those same things, except they have some other slight differences and some differences about, uh, we can get into that later. But really the place where people tend to get into arguments on a daily basis and have differences of opinion with each other are on the positive implications of what God wants people to do. And that's basically what Sharia means. It's the sum total of things God wants you to do. Interesting. Okay. So it's like the holiness codes of the Torah. It's a lot like halakhic law, actually. What's halakhic law? Well, I, unless I'm using the term wrong, it's basically rabbinical sort of Judaism and the ideas of like what, uh, what you should do and what is a kosher and what is treif and that kind right. of thing. Right. So I'm just, I'm trying to draw a distinction here between Christianity and Judaism, whereas in the Torah, you have this whole system of laws like given by God to Moses and then to Joshua and whatnot yeah. given very literally. And then the question for Christians is, well, do we have to follow that anymore? Right. And for Jews, do we have to follow that still, you know, for Christians, like in light of Jesus, do we still have to follow that? This is different. I think that Christians who hear Sharia law, they go, Oh, it's like, the Torah in the Quran, but that's not what you're saying. The Quran doesn't give you Sharia law. The Quran doesn't have those kind of laws. So it's Muslims. Well, well or at least has, not in the big systematic way. It doesn't that, say here's the law and A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then like goes through everything. And then uh, it never does that. It gives you like different things where it tells you to do things, but okay. it's, it's fragmented, like I said. And so, you know, it'll be like, and then there's the story of Moses, so don't worship idols. And then you get something that says don't worship idols there. Uh, but it's nothing like some- if a woman is menstruating, like have her go stay outside of the camp for X days. And if no. you combine these threads together or, you know, if someone commits adultery and this happens, do you stone them? And whereas, Well, like, no, there, yeah. there, are, there are sections where it has things like that. So it okay. says one of the chapters starts by saying the adulterer and the adulteress, you shall uh, give each of them 80 lashes okay. and not be overcome with pity uh, in the religion of God. Uh, for them. And then later on, it says that, uh, however, the only way you're supposed to convict these people is if you have four witnesses that uh, can testify to the adultery. And then it says that if you come and accuse somebody of adultery and you don't have the witnesses, then you yourself get flogged 80 times. Hmm. Actually, it's 100 if you commit adultery and 80 if you uh, 
lie, and then you're uh, no longer allowed to be accepted as a witness. So these are all, those are very specific things. Yeah. But for example, something about, I guess there is a verse actually about menstruation, for example, and all it says is basically avoid women while they're menstruating, which I'm not going to speculate on the wisdom of that. Uh, I'll leave that to you and your <laughs> listenership. Yeah. But basically, it doesn't really lay out a ton of these sort of things of can you pray if you've been menstruating or can you, you know, does blood on your body invalidate your prayer or that kind of a thing, which the Sharia addresses. A lot of that, much of it, most of it perhaps comes from the Hadiths, which as I mentioned are a much more uh, kind of negotiable thing because there really isn't much disagreement on the text of the Quran. Yeah. More than there is with like the Torah or something like that. Uh, there's really only one version of it that's survived. And pretty much all of the sects of Islam, while they disagree on like how to interpret it, agree on the text and, you know, that kind of a thing. So if something is in the Quran, people really don't have much of an option of sort of uh, fudging their way around it. Uh, one of the key examples of that is it does say in the Quran that if somebody is a thief, you cut off their hand to punish them for what they've done. And so that's sort of a sticking point for sort of modernists that kind of don't want, you know, the image of a religion that amputates people's hands. But it's hard for them to get around that one because it's right there. It's right there and it says it. Though it's not impossible. I mean, there's also hadiths that say that, you know, if somebody steals a loaf of bread to feed the starving family, the prophet, or I believe one of his successors that's also considered a normative example, didn't cut their hand off. And that's taken as a sort of thing of, okay, well, maybe it'll only be if it's like high level embezzlement from like state money and like corruption, then we'll do it. Or we could still commute the sentence or something like that if they want to do that. Or, you know, sometimes you'll have people that say, yeah, I just don't think that this is really a good sort of way of organizing a modern society. We should have regular sort of civil laws instead of these sort of religious things, even though they provide guiding principles. So there's a lot of shades in the Sharia law debate then within Islam. Yes, although most people that are working within a Sharia frame of reference as such follow certain interpretive rules, uh, which... I think the closest parallel I would know in uh, Christianity would be Methodism, where you have this sort of Wesleyan, uh, what was it, a quadrilateral, quadrilateral or something? yeah. That's it. I wasn't sure if it had five sides or four, but four. And the idea is that if you have a question of whether something is allowed, you go to the Quran. If the Quran doesn't tell you what to do, or it gives you contradictory outcomes, you go to the Hadith. If the Hadith doesn't tell you what to do, you look back through history and see, was there a point at which all of the scholars in Islam universally agreed to something? Hmm. Uh, and there aren't many cases of that, but uh, that's a necessary thing to underpin the system because the idea that this is the procedure that you follow, for example, is something that's not found anywhere in the Quran, but it's a matter of consensus in that at right. one point everybody, or at least everybody that they consider Sunni, agreed that this was the way you do things, and so therefore it becomes binding on the community. And then if you don't find anything that is one of those three categories, either the Quran, the examples of the prophet, or a consensus, you move on to the fourth category, which is reason, in the sense of not just, oh, I think this, it's more like, okay, uh, if the Quran says 
don't tell your parents off. You're also not allowed to hit your parents because hitting your parents is like telling your parent parents off, but it's more severe. Yeah. Uh, so it's certain kinds of reason uh, where you use analogy basically to uh, take a known ruling and produce the unknown ruling. And then if you don't have any of those, uh, there are a couple of other things like the general interests of the community or uh, things that sort of will be more in line with what will help you out. But uh, after that, if you've exhausted all of these channels and you don't find anything still, then the default presumption is that something is allowed. So that's basically how it works. And that's the sort of procedure for Islamic law for Sunnis, and it's slightly different for mainstream Shias. But that's basically how it works. So are there any nations that have implemented Sharia law that would call it that? And are there differences between the laws in those nations? Yes, absolutely. Well, Iran is probably the main example in that they've got an Islamic Republic. What does that mean? Well, for them, it means that you have a complicated system where uh, the people sort of are ultimately sort of still the source of everything in the country, and uh, all of the officials, including the supreme leader, are elected. Whether the elections are fair or not is an entirely different kettle of fish, but in theory, at least, the supreme leader is elected by the people at the beginning of the sort of revolution when the constitution is approved, and he's overseen by a body of elected clerics uh, who have certain requirements for being in that office, Uh, and when he dies, or if he's impeached, which... I don't think happens very often or ever, they would uh, gather together and elect a successor for him. Hmm. He is not able to rule by decree. He basically is able to appoint certain key people, and occasionally, if he really wants to, he can put something to a referendum. Then there's a parliament that creates the laws on a daily sort of basis, and a president, all of whom are elected, Uh, And the president comes up with a cabinet and uh, drafts the legislation. The parliament votes on it. And then the group of clerics, half of whom are appointed directly by the supreme leader and half of whom are appointed by parliament, called the Guardian Council, basically vetoes or approves the legislation or can send it back to the uh, sort of parliament to be reworked. And they're religious clerics. They're religious clerics. Uh, They have to be sort of very, I guess, reputable religious clerics in theory. Mm -hmm. The catch is that they also have the right to veto people for offices such as the presidency, the parliament, uh, judicial appointments, and the council that oversees the supreme leader. So in a lot of ways, it has the potential, at the very least, um, and you can read into that as you see fit, to turn into this sort of oligarchy of power that is basically a a show democracy. Although I think people that say that it's completely undemocratic are probably exaggerating to some extent, at least. It has at least some real democratic elements in that there is input from the people that matters, but it's not really a complete sort of democracy in the sense that we'd be familiar with it either, in that even if there's sort of a very clear direction the people are going in, it's, it doesn't necessarily get reflected in the way uh, policies get made. Okay. And then what about just like a less extreme example than Iran? Like what are other countries that have some kind of Sharia law actually enacted? Right. So... Um, That's not really Sharia. That's just the sort of 
governmental framework there that they've got. The way it basically works there is they have laws that are implemented and uh, made by the parliament. And the idea is basically that if you don't have a law that, if you have a law that doesn't accord with the Sharia, it gets thrown out in theory in Iran. Okay. But it's got secular legislation alongside that. Saudi Arabia, for example, claims that it is run completely on Sharia or something like that. They're an absolute monarchy. So basically, I, I believe there's a council that sort of more or less rubber stamps things, but I don't believe I, I, I don't believe it actually has legislative authority as such. I, I'd have to check up on that. But basically the way it works is that they generally follow this sort of relatively extremist variety of Islam. Extremist is maybe not the right word. It's very puritanical, at least, called the Wahhabi uh, strain of Islam. Uh, that's been a part of the uh, kingdom since its antecedents were founded in the 18th century. And basically, it's this very um, anti-accretion, I guess you could call it, or anti-superstitious sort of form of Islam that's very similar to the sort of Puritan or early Protestant movements, maybe, where it's very uh, very much opposed to things like the veneration of saints. Yeah, get those icons out of there, keep the space very yeah. simple. Yes, exactly, yeah. and it's it's very austere. And for example, they also have laws such as women are not allowed to drive cars in Saudi Arabia. That actually has nothing to do with Sharia, and I don't believe that there might be some people that tell you it has to do with Sharia, but I don't think that's the official state policy. It's just a law they have that accords with their customs. Interesting. And other countries that employ Sharia for the most part so, for example, both Iran and Saudi Arabia are the only two countries that uh, require women to wear headscarves in public, legally. Although in other countries that may be culturally sort of required, those are the only two that actually have, like, police that will, you know, say, hey, wait a minute, your headscarf isn't on. Well, the Taliban used to do that, too, in Afghanistan. Also, uh, the Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State, ISIS, uh, I'm sure they mandate that as well. You know, most other countries where there's some aspect of Sharia, it exists alongside civil law and generally is related to things like family law, such as who gets children after a divorce, uh, divorce proceedings, uh, adoption, who can marry who, that kind of a thing. Yeah. So it, usually when it gets incorporated into the state, it works that way. But even in cases where it is not a matter of state law, such as Turkey or Tunisia or things like that, it's still, in a lot of ways, important to people's daily lives in that they want to, well, the observant Muslims usually want to live in a way that sort of accords with the Sharia. So Sharia law gets important in the United States because there's a lot of fear about it. I've heard many people on the right mention to me on Facebook or in person, well, look, I didn't vote for Hillary because I don't want Sharia law to come to America. And there is a profound fear in a lot of conservative circles that there is some sort of movement toward enacting this kind of rule of law in America. The term Sharia law coming to America, is that a sensible phrase? And what would that mean if it were? I'd say my gut reaction is that this is a about analogous to similar conservative fears that a communist revolution was imminent in America unless we stop the Reds. It's something that I think has a lot of currency because people are talking about it a lot and there's plenty, I mean, there's really no shortage of, you know, scary pictures you can show people of what things will yeah. look like if it happens. 
that kind of a thing. Uh, or, you know, horror stories you can tell from, like, it's cherry-picked, kind of, although because news outlets tend to report, just by their very nature, bad news or scary news or sad news rather than, you know, normal functional people doing regular things and going about their lives, you know, a disproportionate amount of what you're going to hear about Sharia in the news are these sort of horror stories. Right. And because these have sort of salience in people's minds, I think that basically provides this sort of, generates this kind of fear Kind of like if you tell children the stories about the boogeyman every night, they're going to go to bed afraid of a boogeyman. Or if you tell them stories about pirates, they'll go to bed afraid of di- pirates or, you know, scary dinosaurs. It's the scary dinosaurs. Well, okay, so why is that true, though? Like, why is it the case that Sharia law either would not come here or that that doesn't even really make sense to say it would come well, here? I, the Muslim population of the country is maybe 2% of the country or something. Maybe. I I just don't see how that could happen. You know, even in the European context where people are quote-unquote overrun with Muslim immigrants, it's still something in the area of 10%. Maybe in 20 years it'll be 15 to 20%. That's not enough people to, you know, run a regime on, even if you get all of them behind the idea. Uh, So practically, it just doesn't, doesn't add up. More to the point, people don't come to America because they want you know, a religious form of government run, you know, presumably, I think, in these people's minds by this sort of uh, undemocratic sort of mullah or sultan or whatever people have in their minds is what what this is. They come here because it's a democratic country that's run efficiently and either gives them economic opportunities or will not be persecuting them for their various beliefs, much the way that all of the rest of our ancestors, or most people's ancestors, I guess if they weren't enslaved or Native Americans, yeah. came here. There's like this poll that I've seen quoted, and I don't, you know, it's not Pew Research. I don't know if it's a even a good poll in terms of the actual pollster. But the numbers it gives are, you know, 51% of American Muslims believe that Muslims should have the option of being ruled under Sharia law. But only 2% of those out of 100, only 2% of American Muslims believe that Sharia law should displace the Constitution as like the law of the land. So whether or not this poll is real or trumped up or whatever, that's really interesting because you wouldn't expect the second number from the first number on common conceptions of Sharia law. So what does that mean? How could it be? 51% would like, yeah, I'd love to be under Sharia law because of my religious beliefs, but that doesn't mean it should be the law of the land. Like, how does that even make sense? Are we thinking about it wrong? Yeah, well, I think the the wording of that is very important. Uh, I don't know that it even specified Muslims in the U.S. should have the option, but I think a lot of people would read that as basically saying – Sharia law, do you think nobody should have it, or should some people have it? And even if you personally don't really want it as a legal system, I think it's it's a big plunge to sort of say, well, I don't want anybody to have it. Right. Saying that it's an option, I think, for people that want it is a very different thing than saying, no, this is the only way to run things. Right. Uh, and yeah. I think that's that's the only reason that number ended up being anywhere near that high. And it might not even have been referring to Muslims in the U.S. It might have been it referring is, no, to Muslims it, it does in- say It does say um, American Muslims should have the right to be governed under Sharia law. But 
again, that's should have the right, should they so choose, which is right. totally different than this should be imposed upon everyone else, which is 2%. Well, it's also totally different from would you personally like to be governed that exactly. way. Exactly. It's different than that. Yeah. Which I suspect the number would be a lot smaller. I see. I don't even, I, I if somebody asked me that question, I, I mean, I guess I'd say yes, but I, I, I don't really know what it would mean. So like, it's kind of one of those things like on a survey where you, you're not really sure which bubble to fill out. So you pick one of them. Yeah. I have my beefs with survey methodology as a whole. But yeah, I, I do think the idea that uh, Muslims don't believe in secular governance is kind of ridiculous. Muslims, uh, including extremely devout Muslims, basically do believe in secular governments. One of the interesting sort of fables that's been very much peddled by both Islamists and sort of right-wing, I don't want to say Islamophobic people, but the people in the right wing that have kind of been keeping this, fanning the flames of this sort of fear in the U.S. and Europe, basically uh, is that historically Muslims have been governed by Sharia law, i.e. this thing where you go first to the Quran and then to the prophet's example and then to consensus and then to reason to determine how things work. That is simply categorically untrue. Basically, in fact, the only people that ruled using purely Sharia law was basically the prophet and the people that immediately followed him that had been his friends. And the only reason they were able to do it is because whenever they made a ruling, it became part of Sharia law. I see. They, they were literally creating Sharia law by right. ruling in that way. Yeah. Right. So, of course, they did that. It's sort of like saying, did the early Jews live under the Deuteronomic and Levitical code? Well, yeah, they did because they were at the very beginning. Right. Or, you know, did Moses live according like, right. or something like that? Or was Jesus Christian or something like, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, one of these sort of questions. After that, while uh, there haven't really been states up until the modern era that have, you know, made a clean break and said, no, we're not founded on the Muslim religion and we don't have anything to do with Islam and mosque is mosque and state is state and never the twain shall meet, you always had, in addition to these courts that were overseen by judges that ruled according to these sort of Sharia-based regulations, which is a problem because, incidentally, those aren't codified anywhere. So you could get a totally different ruling by going to a different person who had like a different reading of the, the scripture, basically. I, it, it's a little more uh, complicated than that, and there's a bit more reliability. But because there's different schools of thought, you could go to a different kind of judge, and they'd give you a different ruling if you wanted that. And also partly because under the established juridical procedures for this, you could only be tried in a Sharia court if you agreed to the trial. So if you've killed somebody and are guilty of sin, you're going to say, yeah, sorry, I don't agree to this arbitration. And then technically, you know, you're off the hook, hmm. uh, which is ridiculous as a way of like actually running a society. Yeah. In, in that sense, Sharia law is like far too generous. <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, and also it's just not very well equipped for the realities of how, uh, as it was traditionally constructed, it wasn't very well equipped for uh, the realities of how societies 
you know, developed societies sort of work. For example, most of the evidence that is allowed, except in sort of rare circumstances, is all based on testimony of somebody that witnessed something. And if you have two people that witness something, then it becomes a fact. So if you see somebody coming out of the, I don't know, the stable where somebody was murdered with a bloody knife and the person was stabbed to death, you need two people that say they saw him coming out with a bloody knife. And if you've got that, then you can say, aha, he came out with a bloody knife. It doesn't prove that the person was the murderer, and uh, the judge isn't able to sort of conclude that if they came out of there with a bloody knife, they were the murderer. They can only conclude that they had a bloody knife. Right. And that's, that's not practical. Sharia law developed kind of similar to, like, the Western judicial system, the way that it developed. Well, no. I mean, uh, the Western judicial system is based on sort of customary law, mm. and that was something that you know, in a lot of cases sort of predated Islamic law and existed alongside it. And usually what would happen in a given Muslim kingdom is that the king would have his own set of laws in addition to Sharia. And if you wanted to be tried according to Sharia, you could, usually, unless it was like a matter of state security or unless you'd violated the market regulations or the tax law or if the king had it out for you personally, and then you'd be hauled in front of the, the royal uh, court. Okay. And that would have its own sort of laws So this is uh, making sense to me. It's, it's almost as if, like, okay, let's say in Folsom, California, you know, there's a large Christian church that people are really involved in, and they control a bunch of property, and people choose to live on that property and kind of participate in this community. And then there's a poll that goes out saying, do you think that Christians in Folsom should have the option of having their civil disputes decided by the council of this big church where everyone lives and is in a community? And then like most of those people would go, yeah, I mean like they should have the choice if it's binding, but it's just so different than saying, do you think that this form of like theocracy or sort of like priests ruling on on judicial matters right. should be normative for the whole society. It's just a very different question. Well, interestingly enough, and I, I should clarify this point, Sharia law, when it's implemented as a legal system, doesn't necessarily mean there are clerics ruling. Okay. It just means that the laws are in some way or other inspired by this procedure I outlined of going first to the Quran, then the prophet's example. Okay. So maybe it's more like asking, you know, asking a survey question of us Christians. Like, do you think that the laws of America should be prayerfully considered by Christian thinkers? You know what I mean? It's almost like, it would be like that if you were to ask directly, do you think that Sharia should govern the country. Yes, okay. it would be like that. And so but, even uh, if you think, even if you ask Muslims that, do you think that Sharia should govern the country? It's al- almost like asking them, do you think that the laws should be written prayerfully in this process of starting with the Quran and then going to the Hadith and then going to tradition and then going to reason? Yeah, it's almost like that, except that That's what you would get in most Muslim countries, but the elephant in the room here is that, of course, America, and everybody knows this, isn't a Muslim country. Right. And nobody, I think, really, uh, even under traditional and very harsh Islamic sort of law uh, as as it would be, there have always historically been provisions for Christians 
to not have to follow a lot of these statutes. Obviously, if they kill somebody, yes, they get hauled in front of a court or something like that. But the requirement, for example, that they not drink alcohol or that they not uh, eat pork or that they cover their head in public if they're a woman, uh, although there's some questions about that when uh, some codes say that. For example, in Iran, all of those things are legal for Christians. So it's almost like you you could do a poll in Iran or Turkey and ask Christians living there, hey, do you think that Christians should be able to not be governed under Sharia law? And that is the identical question to the one in this survey. Just flipped. Well, yes, but they, I mean, they already are. And they already uh, are the given those it, it, exemptions, right? Right. Even under, you know, the, uh, Saudi Arabia is kind of an exception in that they generally don't allow people that are not Muslim to live in the country, yeah. at least not officially, or to have citizenship. Uh, although they, there, there are different rules that regulate, like, sort of the, you know, foreign oil workers and stuff that, uh, especially the, um, like, American and European ones. How convenient. Uh, then that govern. Yes, exactly. And that's a traditional thing. Uh, ISIS is kind of breaking the mold in that way in some regards. There was actually, and, and this, this got a lot of bad press, quite understandably, uh, and you know, possibly deservedly, back 10 years ago or so, there was a story that came out of Afghanistan, or I guess it would be more than 10 years ago, it would be 16, 17 years ago, back under the Taliban, and there were exactly two Jews that lived in Afghanistan still uh, by the time the Taliban was coming exactly to the Exactly two. There were two. And, well, the f- story behind this is actually really funny. Uh, I mean, it's sad, but uh, the only reason that they'd, they were both like 80 years old and the only reason they'd stayed there is because they hated each other viciously. And neither of them wanted the other guy to get control of the synagogue. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, I, you can actually look that up. That's actually true. That's amazing. But it got this very bad press because the Taliban issued a regulation that both of them needed to wear on their bodies a sort of yellow star in public uh, at all times. And obviously that was very reminiscent of the Holocaust, yeah. uh, which I, I think was not at all on their radar, being you know rural Afghans that basically are very much caught up in their own sort of thing. The reason they had done that, and I'm not sort of justifying this, obviously the optics are very bad and, you know, it's it's a whole sort of thing, but the reason they did it was because they were Jewish, they were not subject to the kind of regulations that other Afghans were. And so, for example, if somebody saw them without the long sort of beard that the Taliban required or drinking alcohol or something like that, that would be a protection and prevent them from getting arrested or shot yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and it was a practical measure. And the Taliban are not really a bunch of sweethearts, I hate to say. <laughs> but even they took this seriously enough that, no, if you're a non-Muslim that lives in our country, you have certain rights that are enshrined in the pre-modern sort of tradition that need to be respected. Uh, and this was really the secret to the sort of convivencia that was uh, behind the successful flourishing of Muslim Spain and other places. That is not to say that, you know, pre-modern Muslims always treated religious minorities with perfect respect, that there weren't, you know, periodic massacres or, you know, tension or discrimination that was enshrined either in law or in fact. But generally saying, um, it's really not ever been a part of certainly mainstream traditional Islam 
or even most varieties of currently popular, you know, more extreme versions of Islam, even, that you really completely impose the religion on unwilling people. That isn't really part of it. So this question of, should we impose Islamic law on the Christians living in the U.S. is kind of a non-starter for just about anybody. Wow, that's, dude, this is really complicated and it's like a lot to digest, but it's really helpful of illuminating, like, even if that's a kind of a bogus survey, that the giant difference between 51% and 2% is sort of explained by this background information of how are people of other faiths treated in Islamic nations and, you know, they're given sort of these choices. They're not held to these things. And so for even for a American Muslim to go, oh yeah, I mean, Muslims should have a choice for them. It sure doesn't sound to me the way you're describing it. Like there's any kind of malice in that or desire to impose anything on anybody else. It's just kind of like, it's the way that Islamic societies do tolerance. Yes. And that's, that's a key since it's been a part of the Islamic tradition for such a long time in, you know, it wasn't really called tolerance, you know, at the time. That's kind of a new, new word yeah. of like the, probably the, I guess maybe the 18th or 19th century into today. Maybe it's a little older, but uh, that was basically how things came to be um, in the modern era at a time when tolerance is a value that's very much highlighted or historically has been highlighted anyway in the modern West. That's something that's been a part of people's tradition that they're very much foregrounded and they're intensely proud of. And it's a very central part, if not of the way people have historically understood the religion's main tenets, although I think it was important historically. It's definitely a, a very central point of uh, what it means to be Muslim to people now. And that applies pretty much across the board. Okay, guys, tune in later this week for part two of this conversation with Judd about Islam. If you like this episode or any other episode, please share it with a friend. That's the best way to spread the word about the show. You can add me on Facebook, Dan Koch, K-O-C-H, or Twitter, at Dan Koch. And I'm excited that you guys are going through this adventure with me. Thank you for continuing to listen and support the show. 